Salute. Slancha. Cheers. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Woodenville Wine Country's 90-point plus reserve night on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and events with your guide, master of mixology, and Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. So sit back and get ready to stir it up. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on 570 KBI. That's right, it's Happy Hour here in Seattle and around the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, master mixologist, and your weekend wine guy. So glad that you can join us. Um, Hey, if you want to check us out online, please visit happyhourradio.net. And if you have a question out there seeking that perfect wine pairing or what cocktail to serve at a bar mitzvah, <laughs> they serve cocktails, send us an email at ask at happyhourradio.net. Um, hey, what a great week we had. Taste Washington was last weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Great seminars, lots of fun people. And uh, I have to say that the quality of wine uh, in Washington has increased tenfold since those early days. Congratulations, everybody. Good food as well. Um, hey, if you're into food and wine, I invite you to check out, well, to head up to Woodenville anytime. We've got Reserve Night in Woodenville featuring 90-plus point wines, Friday, April 25th. Tickets are going fast. You want to check this out, Friday the 25th. Tickets available at woodenvillewinecountry.com. And if you can't get a ticket to that, uh, on May 3rd, there's this really fun event called Cellars and Skillets. They're cooking up some great food. It is a progressive dinner heading to wineries uh, and celebrity chefs, etc., uh, tickets available at woodenvillewinecountry.com. And last but not least, it was last call for Passport to Woodenville. So save the date for May 5th and 6th. Um, if you're traveling east to wine country and you are into uh, some of those dark, peppery, spicy, bacon-loaded wines, such as Syrah, that's what we grow really well here these days. And the Walla Walla Wine Alliance is having a... A big celebration. Celebrate Syrah. June 19th to the 21st, I will be there. It's uh, wine, dinners, uh, presentations, seminars, celebrities. We've got the world of Syrah in your backyard in Walla Walla. Tickets available at wallawallawine.com. Well, I'm excited about today's show. I've got Erica Landon and Ken uh, Pello of Walter Scott Wines joining us today. Going to talk about some Oregon Pinot Noir. And then I've got, uh, you know, one of Seattle's... Uh, Really six great success stories, Jason Wilson, Chef Jason Wilson of Crush and Miller's Guild, and uh, his partner and sommelier, Jake Kossif. We're going to dive in to see what that new place is all about and touch, uh, uh, learn about some cocktails and some of the great food he's been crafting for years now. And um, But before we do that, let's, let's talk about France. Let's talk about Bordeaux wines. Let's talk with my friend, Arnie Milan. Arnie is a... Uh, an educated wine guy. He's uh, tasted more wine than I could ever hope to, um, and he's uh, hanging out at Wine World Warehouse. Arnie Milan, welcome to Happy Hour. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Hey, I'm excited to uh, hang out with you and chat about Bordeaux today um, for all of our fans out there and all 20 of them right now. <laughs> We've got uh, um, a great red wine and white wine and sweet wine region called Bordeaux. So when we're tasting Bordeaux, let's talk about the red wines because everyone's talking about, you know, you sit on these wines for 50 years, 60 years, however long. How do you taste Bordeaux? What are we looking for? 
Well, with Bordeaux, it depends on the region, but the major grapes are going to be Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. Merlot is actually the most widely planted grape in Bordeaux. And then you've got some uh, Petit Verdot, which is a very dark-colored grape. Um, and you've got uh, uh, Cabernet Franc, which has some really cool aromatics. And then you've got also Malbec, which they don't call Malbec just to confuse us Americans. They call it Presac over there in Bordeaux. But uh, <clears throat> so you're looking for it's different than a California red blend or Cabernet blend. Bordeaux is, is about blending. You don't find 100% varietal wines there. But what you look for are what you should find with these grapes. For example, with Cabernet Sauvignon, we're going to get a lot of uh, blackcurrant notes. Uh, it's of cassis. With uh, Merlot, it's going to be more black cherry. Sometimes there are some aromatics that are interesting, that uh, like cedar or cigar box type notes. Um, and uh, with some uh, Malbec or Presac, you get notes of uh, uh, espresso roast. Um, and uh, uh, all these grapes together when they're blended make can make a very complex wine. And the reason they're blending in Bordeaux is truly because of their uh, proximity to the ocean. Their, their climate is is uh, somewhat challenging at times, and that's why vintage is so uh, important in Bordeaux, right? Vintage is real important, but one of the reasons they blend is just history. You know, uh, over the years, uh, back a few centuries ago, uh, they had vineyards planted with a variety of grapes. They weren't grape ampelographers or students of grape varieties, they just would harvest a field blend. Um, and uh, this is why we've got all these different grapes in, in places like Chateauneuf-du-Pape or Chianti or Rioja and Bordeaux is because they had all these different varieties. They would harvest them at the same time, blend them together um, and make their wine. And we're talking about the 17th century, 18th century. Even yeah. before that. Really? Uh, but... Uh, uh, back to the 16th century, even. Um, and uh, because in the 17th century, uh, Chateau Aubryon became pretty well known as early as that. And in the 18th century, they started classifying the estates of Bordeaux. And all the estates in Bordeaux are known as Chateau. Yes, that's true. Um, they can have a, a, a second wine, um, or you can have a negociant wine, and you can or you may or may not use the word Chateau on it. And so for Bordeaux, we're talking about a river estuary, the Gironde. Uh, we've got the Garonne and the Dordogne rivers coming, right. which separate the left bank from the right bank. Correct. And so when we say left bank wines, we're talking about the Medoc, uh, Saint Estephe, Saint Julian, Margot, uh, Poyac, uh, Omedoc, uh, and Medoc. Yes. Um, and those, yeah. on that side is mostly Cabernet Sauvignon based, right? right? And that's partly because of the influence of the ocean and the pine forest that protects Bordeaux from the ocean. But it's also a question of soils. Now, today we're much more sophisticated. We know about different grape varieties. We know that Merlot ripens earlier than Cabernet, and Petit Verdot can be a late ripener, uh, needs a lot of sun. So they make their blends according to what the grapes, what grapes did best, uh, that vintage. And they make a final blend prior to bottling. We're here talking with Ar taste. we're speaking with Arnie Milan, one of the uh, the city's Bordeaux experts in my mind. Uh, great guy. You can find him out at Wine World Warehouse, and uh, he's formerly of Esquin Wine, uh, and that's uh, 
staked his claim in the wine world uh, starting at Esquin, and you're off to uh, Wine World Warehouse. And you were just in uh, down in Los Angeles this, this earlier this year? Yeah, every year I go to the uh, Union de Grand Cru. This is a group of uh, Bordeaux estates, and they host an incredible tasting of uh, the vintage that just is about to hit the market, in this case, the 2011 vintage in January. Uh, we taste it. And uh, that will be available probably later this year. And, uh, and I, how they sell that is a is referred to as? Well, it's called the En Primeur, the Futures Market. And the wine world uh, descends upon Bordeaux every year, uh, either late March, early April. This, this year it starts this coming week, late this week, early next week. When everybody from China, from Russia, from the United States, we all gather, and uh, then you visit all the different chateaus on a very rigorous uh, schedule and taste their wines. And based on that tasting, that will affect market demand because the wine writers are there, the Robert Parkers, the wine spectators, and uh, everyone writes up the vintage. And, and those wines are in bottle, correct? This isn't a barrel tasting. It is a barrel tasting. Okay, so it is a barrel tasting, which I always thought was very interesting, especially with Bordeaux. You're speaking of these chateaux that are using 100% new French oak, and yet you're trying to taste a wine which hasn't fully matured in that oak, and I'm thinking you get a lot of oak flavors, right? Well, you know, it's really difficult to taste a wine that's just been made right out of barrel. I know Jake knows this very well. And uh, with Bordeaux, uh, for example, where you're with a group of 17 people usually, 15 to 17, when you go to each estate. And I remember at Leaville's Cause, which is a really terrific estate of second growth, uh, I had to walk away from everyone in the group and find a quiet corner to spend some time with their wine. It was just so impenetrable. And part of the problem was was the 10 vintage, which is a vintage of incredible concentration. So it really took a lot to try to figure out this wine. Was there really good fruit there or was everything, it was just so closed up and covered in tannin and oak notes, you know, how do you determine that? And the only way really to sense that at that time of the, of the wine's life in that cycle is to really focus and concentrate. It's very difficult. Where's Arnie? He's in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I give a lot of credit to Robert Parker, uh, he, if the much maligned pointing rating system. Um, we're here speaking with Arnie Milan and uh, talking about 2011 vintage in Bordeaux. And we'll chat about the 09s and 010s as well. And we're going to crack some of this red wine open here when we come back from our break. And stay tuned. I've got uh, Jake Kossoff and Chef Jason Wilson coming up here on Happy Hour Radio. June 19th through 21st, the world is converging on Walla Walla. The world of Syrah, that is. Celebrate Walla Walla Valley Wine, the world of Syrah, with winemaker panels, tastings, dining, and more. Compare Syrah wines from Casa Robles and Sonoma, California, Yara Valley, Australia, and over 60 Walla Walla wineries. Get tickets at wallawallawine.com slash celebrate. Don't wait. Space is limited, and it's filling up fast. That's wallawallawine.com slash celebrate. Hi, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio. Hey, join me Friday, April 25th for Reserve Night in Woodenville. The best of 90-plus rated vintages, winemakers, food, and lots of fun. Check out WoodenvilleWineCountry.com. Time for another round. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio, Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Sponsored by Woodenville Wine Country's 90-point-plus Reserve Night. 
with Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. I am your host, Christopher Chan, and I have the pleasure of speaking with my good friend, Arnie Milan of Wine World Warehouse, and he's brought some great Bordeaux. And Arnie, um, I get the Wine Spectre magazine. I've seen that the 2000 vintage was the first vintage of the century. 05, they said the same thing. And most recently, 2009 was another vintage of the century. But when I was down in L.A. and, and tasting the uh, 2010s, I thought that blew the 09 away personally. And tell us about 09, 010. 10 and 011 in your perspective. Sure. Well, I agree with you. Uh, the 09 vintage is an excellent vintage. There are some terrific wines being produced from 09. But 10 is a whole different story. While the weather may not have been as perfect as 09, the wines gained incredible concentration in 10, good acidity levels. What's interesting is that you see global warming effects in Bordeaux and that they're starting to use less Cabernet Franc and more. On, this is the left bank wines that are more Cabernet Sauvignon concentrated. They're adding in a lot more Petit Verdot than they ever did because now they're able to ripen it in these warmer vintages. Interesting. But 10 uh, has just so much concentration. We were talking earlier about how you have to go off into a corner to get a sense of the wine. That was 10. <laughs> Nine probably wouldn't have been as necessary. It's interesting you say that because when I'm ta- doing the blind tastings with our friends at Canlis, um, you bring in 09, it's like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's almost, we never said that before about Bordeaux, but 09 was so ripe that it's almost uncharacteristic of a, a Bordeaux wine. Yeah, it's very rich and notes of earth that you sometimes get with Bordeaux are missing in a lot of 09s. But here's the thing. 09 is a great vintage for the top estates. And the lesser estates, the ones that most pe- humans can afford to buy, in the 10 to 30, 40, 50 range, were okay. They made decent wine. But in 2010, these little estates made extraordinary wine and represent incredible values. So when you're you're shopping for Bordeaux, I would look for the small estates from 2010. It's hard to find a really bad wine from that vintage uh, in any price range, from the $10 up to the... 50 or $60 range, they're all uh, generally very, very good. And those uh, chateaux or estates are called the Cru Bourgeois? Well, there's Cru Bourgeois, and there's just a simple, small estate where the guy is not Cru Bourgeois. And Cru Bourgeois is kind of in a bad situation right now. There are lots of lawsuits. They tried to reclassify <laughs> it, and it was just a mess. So, uh, uh, But I'm talking about just your average mom-and-pop small estate we're able to make some pretty good wine in 2010. Well, you got to visit Bordeaux to, to find those because they do exist. Not everything is the uh, opulent uh, Chateau Margaux. Um, and tell me about 2011. I see you have a, a Chateau Cantonet Brown from uh, the Commune of Margaux, which is on the left bank. And we have this beautifully opaque uh, black, red, purple, I should say red, dark, black, red wine here mm-hmm. in our glass. Well, Cantonac Brown is a classified growth. They classified uh, Bordeaux estates back about 160 years ago, and uh, they classified them in an order of quality, and it was very subjective. So they made five growths, from first growth to fifth growth. Cantonac Brown is the third growth, so it's right in the middle. Um, it's a beautiful estate. been there. And uh, the, even their second wine in 10 was terrific. But right now we have the 11. And 11 is a difficult vintage. Um, There was uh, a a lot of sorting that had to be done, and uh, yields weren't that great. It got some mediocre to bad press. 
uh, and the futures were kind of a failure because people didn't buy much on futures for 11. In fact, even in 10. Well, they were burned out from 09. And, yeah. yeah. Even in 10, they were burned out a little from 09. But having tasted uh, most of the classified growth from 11, I got to say that uh, there are some disappointments. It's an uneven vintage. So there were some fifth growths that I normally really like a lot. They're go-to wines, and they just did not perform. On the other hand, you had an unknown estate, a relatively lesser known like Chateau Gloria, and that blew me away. That was one of the wines of the whole vintage. Well, that's um, good because they've been up and down throughout the years. There's there's right. great Glorias, and then there's oh my Gloria, and there's <laughs> there's not a they're not a cru bourgeois either. Uh, well, tell um, us about what you smell in this wine. Uh, I, when I picked up the glass, I've got the, this uh, this very tightly wound sense of graphite, pencil shavings, and some tight, uh, freshly herbed, but just like you put it in a little ball. It's not very oily. Well, here's the thing. We're tasting it before release. You can't even buy these 11s yet in the States. So it's still a very, very young wine that was just bottled. Okay. So it's going to be very tight, and uh, what we what we get aroma wise, I agree with you. And I've got Jay Kossoff here, who is an event sommelier and the wine director, and well, we'll learn more about him. But I want you to chime in on this wine too, Jake. Yeah, we're getting oak notes, a little bit of olive hint, and uh, some uh, medium red to black fruit. It it's kind of cool because you were talking about the vintage being a difficult vintage, and there's lots of fruit in the wine, but you can kind of tell that it, they struggled because the fruit, as opposed to being mostly black, has this this really pretty tart, sort of exciting red edge to it. I think I think a Frenchman might call it a little nervous. Yeah. But it's but it but it's very tasty in this context when it's balancing out the oak. It makes the wine feel fresh. It makes the wine feel. It's it's delicious. This is not a heavy wine, but it's a wine that, though it has lots of structure, is kind of light on its feet, and and it's like a football player taking ballet or something like that. <laughs> and and here here's the danger of us tasting it this young because we don't know how this wine will develop exactly in the bottle. Uh, we can assume that it'll open up a lot more uh, over the next few years. Maybe have a little more generous fruit to it. I mean, I'm still getting a little nut of cassis fruit on that. Um, so uh, uh, tasting it. Like like we were talking, it's an up and down vintage, and for the first time, I think it was a, a real failure in the past thirty years in terms of uh, its offering on futures market. Twelve is another difficult vintage. Thirteen's another difficult vintage. Eleven was very good for Sauternes and uh, whites. Twelve of was outstanding for Sauternes and whites, better than eleven in general. Twelve is slightly better than eleven. And 13, uh, really tough, uh, terrible for Sauternes. Decam and a lot of top states didn't even produce a thir- 2013 wine. Just for our listeners out there and Happy Hour Radio Land, we're speaking of Bordeaux, and we're here with Arnie Milan of Wine World Warehouse. So uh, on the left bank of Bordeaux, uh, which is the western side of the Gironde, right? would yes. be more Cabernet-dominated, Cabernet Sauvignon-dominated wines. The right bank is more Merlot and Cabernet Franc. And then... Up the river, a touch is a ways is uh, by the river Serron is the area of Sauternes and uh, Prignac right. and Fargs and Barsac. Barsac. And, yeah, which they make Sauternes with a sweet wine from Botrytis, Sauvignon Blanc, and Semillon and Muscadel. Right. And Botrytis is uh, we call that noble rot. Um, if it were to go unchecked, uh, it would be like you ever have an orange at home and it gets a little gray covering to it if it sits too long on the counter. <laughs> That's Botrytis, but it's it's Botrytis gone bad as gray rot. When when it blows off, 
uh, then it uh, just attacks skin of the grape, and and eventually uh, the grape looks terrible from the outside, but it causes enzymatic reactions in there. Some of the water part component of the juice evaporates. You get these gorgeous sweet wines. Well, this is what I was telling you folks. Arnie Milan is a wealth of knowledge, uh, especially about Bordeaux and many other wine regions. I'm enjoying this uh, Ch- uh, Chateau Cantonac Brown 2011. If uh, I, yeah, if I may add one more thing. Yeah. Though. We were talking about how there's so many great values out there, especially for 10 and 9. This is kind of what we specialize in at uh, Wine World. So... You know, we have a wide variety of estates that you could choose from in a lot of 2010. Well, this has been delicious. It's such a treat to have you on the show, and I'll, I'll look forward to having you back where we can talk about other great vintages, and perhaps you can bring something not yet released. Uh, Arnie Milan, thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you, Chris. So I've got Chef Jason Wilson here and, of course, uh, the wine director, sommelier Jake Kossif, who has been a longtime friend, both of them. We go way back. We've been in the food and beverage industry a long time. Uh, Chef Jason and Jake, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. So, uh, Chef Jason, I'm going to call you Jason just for short, huh? Can we do that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you can um, just call him JJ. That's his nickname around the restaurant. Double J. Uh, tell us, did you grow up in the Northwest? And what was your first, uh, where did you get your inspiration or your calling? When did you find your calling for cooking? I'm a, I'm a Northwest transplant, like probably most people nowadays in the Seattle area. Um, you know, I, I came from Singapore and then before that, San Francisco. So I was a Bay Area kid. My you look really white so for a Singapore guy. Yeah, and I don't speak much Mandarin anymore. I mean, <laughs> so Singapore, it was, a, it was a really great jumping off point between uh, after working in San Francisco. I had an opportunity to go there and work and found myself working in Seattle two years after, after that. And this has become my home. It's where, you know, I've kind of found my roots, soiled them, and, and had a great time learning to, to use the wonderful ingredients here. It's a good place. So you were born in San Francisco? No, I'm a, originally a Midwest kid. Oh, okay, right. So, actually, Jake and I were born in the same luxurious cheese-eating state of Wisconsin. Well, me too. I'm a Milwaukee boy, so... Oh, my gosh. I know. This is why this room feels so good. I thought <laughs> it, it was It smells so good, too. <laughs> don't tell the listeners, but I brought bratwurst for us afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So fun. Um, speaking with Chef Jason Wilson of Crush and uh, Jake Kossoff, partner in Miller's Guild. So Miller's Guild is a new um, project for you. But before we get there, um, Jake, tell me how you got started in the wine business. Um, I have a degree in philosophy, classical languages, and the history of math and science, and I needed to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it, it's, it's, it's a little more fun than that. I When I was a little kid, my best friend's dad owned a restaurant called Gino's on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin. That's kind of a it's kind of a legendary Italian restaurant in in Madison. And uh, one day at school Joey said, Hey, we need a bus boy tonight. You wanna bus tables with me at Gino's? And I was I think I was eleven years old or something like that. And uh I went in and I had so much fun. I've never had a job that wasn't in a restaurant since then. So that's I'm not gonna tell you how long ago it was, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> um and and I, I, my first love is restaurants, and my second love became wine after huh. I, you know, went to college because I think parents want to know that you have a backup plan. But I could have just stayed in restaurants and been happy. And um, and I was m- managing a restaurant. I'd gone back. I'd gone to school on the East Coast and worked in a bunch of restaurants in the mid-Atlantic around Washington, D.C., 
came back to Madison to open a small Italian restaurant. Again, there's a lot of Italian restaurants in the Midwest. Um, and uh, opening the restaurant as the manager, I put a small wine list together, and everybody loved the wine list I put together. I didn't know anything about wine. Wow. Um, but I just picked wine I liked. I, I didn't know enough to pick wine I was supposed to pick. I didn't know enough to you know make the savvy choices. And everybody liked what I was doing, and it seemed so different because I wasn't listening to what anybody told me because you know I was too dumb to. Well, what was on that list back then? Were you needy? No, no, it wasn't that long ago. Um, but they did have the ads, Rio Needy on Ice, Rio Needy So Nice, Rio Needy, Rio Needy. Um, it, was, it was the beginning of, there was, a, there was an explosion of very high-quality Italian importers in the United States in the um, late, um, mid to late 90s. And so it was, uh, there were wines from an importer called Winebow and wines from an importer oh, yeah. called um, uh, Vindivino. And they were of super high quality, but they were really affordable. They were all lots of great Italian wines for under ten dollars a bottle, and so you know that that translated to about twenty bucks on our wine list and glasses for four or five dollars. Sounds and we, like a deal. It was delicious. Hey, when we come back from this break here on Happy Hour Radio, uh, we're going to continue our conversation with Chef Jason Wilson and sommelier Jake Kossoff. And coming up uh, and later in the show will be Erica Landon and Ken Paolo of Walter Scott Wines. Hey, stay right here. This is Happy Hour Radio. If you enjoy fine wine, you're in the right place at the right time. Washington is home to over 700 wineries and now has more 90-plus rated wines than any region in the world. On April 25th, uncork the best of the best during Woodenville Reserve Night at Willows Lodge. This is arguably the richest evening of wine in the Northwest. Nothing but award-winning 90-plus rated Washington vintages. Woodenville Reserve Night. It doesn't get any better than this. See WoodenvilleWineCountry.com. Hi, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio. Join me every Saturday right here, 11 a.m. on 570 KVI. And save the date, June 19th through 21st, for Celebrate Walla Walla Wine, the world of Syrah. Tickets and information at wallawallawine.com. The glass is always half full. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Woodenville Wine Country's 90-point-plus Reserve Night with the Commodore of Cocktails, Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome back to Happy Hour Radio here on 570 KVI. It's my pleasure to have Jason Wilson and Jake Kossoff here of Kreshwa Crush Restaurant and Miller's Guild. So, Jason, we were just chatting about Italian wines with Jake, but um, tell me, where was your first employment in the culinary world? <laughs> I was uh, 16, and I got a job working at a Doubletree Hotel in Santa Clara, so... It was in the heart of Silicon Valley, and uh, you know, it, mainly it was to afford a new surfboard on the weekends and going through high school and so forth. And when I um, when I moved to Hawaii between high school and college, I was eighteen, and I roomed with two guys that were in the kitchen, and uh, we w- we went and ceremonial, had some beers together, and and cooked at the house, and went out and barbecued by the pool, and. It was in this nice big apartment community, and they looked at me as I was cutting mushrooms and said, we're going to change your job to the kitchen. I said, oh, do you think I'm good? And they go, no, you're terrible, but you're going to live with us. You need to learn how to cook. <laughs> so I uh, I really fell in love with it there in, in, in Lahaina, and it was uh, one of those, uh, we talk about it today as a nose-to-tail experience, but you know we, we were able to buy its cheap ahi tuna from a fisherman after a charter, and... Um, 
the subsequent meals and experiences and things that we did with this fish, I think were just an eye-opening experience. And I kind of forever look forward and said, I want to do this for a living. This is what I should be doing. I love that. Well, you know, same thing for me. I mean, A, if you're in the business, if you're in the front of the house, you got a couple of bucks in your pocket at the end of the night, and you're able to feed yourself pretty affordably uh, from the discounts from the line. And if you're back of the house, you're not quite as making as much money, but you're definitely eating well. No, you don't make enough money. <laughs> it's interesting with uh, how that dynamic works, but uh, it's a, certainly a passion, a, a career of passion or a profession of passion. And Jake, um, how did you guys first hook up here in Seattle? Jason, I know back you were starting on the restaurant, uh, Venia, Vaventia? Oh, Vivandi, I did some consulting with Vivandi, and then uh, that didn't make it, and then that's where Steelhead Diner is now, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and you had an idea for Crush, so tell us the genesis of that. My, my wife, Nicole, and I, had, had uh, when we actually met and got together, we, uh, we had shared this crush on each other. And we were married a year and a half later. Um, we were actually dancing in a, during Crush or during Harvest uh, down in Walla Walla, and we stepped outside having a, just had probably a couple too many glasses of wine. And said, you know, let's someday we've got to open a restaurant and we should call it Crush because this is just so romantic. And then out with the uh, out in the trash went the romance of it, and we found a place to buy and spend 16 months and all of our hard-earned capital remodeling. And the um, the opening of Crush happened in 2005, and I had known Jake I think for three years or four years prior. Four, no, five years prior. Oh no. Jason has selective memory. I feel like his husband right now. <laughs> um, so Jason and Nicole and I met um, because we had a mutual friend who Nicole at the time worked for. Yep, and yep. Um, and Jason was a tenant of in an apartment building. And he said he knew that I was trying to open my own restaurant. And he said, oh, my God, I got to introduce you to the chef. He's the best chef. He's amazing. And you guys should do a restaurant together. And so – we got together at, they had a really cute catering space in this building. And this was about seven months before Crush opened. Mm-hmm. Um, about seven months before you got the, got the house, actually. It wasn't before it opened. And, and we started talking about a restaurant that I wanted to do. And they were like, oh, that's really interesting. But they were kind of cagey about it. And, um, and a couple months later, I got a call from Jason saying, hey, um, I can't do your restaurant because we've been looking at this house and we finally got it. And we're going to put our own restaurant in there. But do you want to help us? <laughs> so Jake, uh, we started working together in 2005 when we launched Crush, and he actually rolled out the wine menu and, and assisted and kind of helped roll out all of the service aspects for it. And subsequently, through the years, we've worked together refining and changing Crush from the neighborhood bistro it started with into what today is a tasting menu restaurant and you know kind of a degustation restaurant. So and Jake stepped in and out through that process and. We've always kind of talked about, wouldn't it be great to do a restaurant together? Wouldn't it be great to do this? And we said, you know, it'll happen someday. And then Miller's Guild popped up. Well, where's the, uh, where, and again, the genesis of the inspiration for Miller's Guild, which I noticed is a, uh, a wood-burning fire and just this great aromas of seared meats. And tell me more. How did this come about? Look, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Jason's going to be too humble about it because this was a result of an idea that Jason had at Crush. Crush is known for, and Jason has become known for through Crush, this very refined, very, um, very 
thoughtful, delicate style of cooking. The food itself has really intense flavors, but it's pretty. It's carefully placed. It's everything about it is very is very planned. And he'd been craving the opportunity to, and his words at the time, which I don't think we've used since, but they're great words, were, I want to do something visceral. Mm-hmm. Visceral. Something that something just... Something that, that comes inside of you. It's just, it's kind of this this thing that you follow your gut for. Okay. And, you know, we, like Jake was saying, we, we talk and plan and really work with the food at Crush. And I wanted something that was just about, oh, I you see. know, I wanted something that was of... of, of Big fifth of bourbon in one hand, <laughs> rock and roll, and and a fire breathing dragon. I wanted something that was completely different, and, and and that's exactly what we've built and what we have. I mean, we have something that's not what people expect when they attach my name to it. And for us, it's a it's a place to play in a in a totally different realm, I guess. Crush was Crush was like our symphony music, and mostly Jason symphony music, yeah, yeah. and Miller's Guild is like our um, drum set. Guitar, bass, and um, and uh, really hot lead singer in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> I like the analogies, and I have to say, Crush uh, certainly uh, put s- multiple stars on in the Pacific Northwest for for your uh, talent and uh, notoriety. Uh, Food and Wine Chef of the Year, or something, and and were you a James Beard guy? James Beard Award winner in 2010, and yeah. three years of nominations. So yeah, it's it's done. Crush has done amazing things and will always be our baby and love the evolution that we're having at Crush with the foods there. And it's you had some great remarkable. cocktails, too. Jake, were you part of that uh, de- derivation the, of... The current, the original cocktail list we came up with in the nights, they were they actually did a lot of the build on Crush themselves, which they don't tell everybody about, which is a really cool thing. It's, I, look at, I look at Jason and Nicole, and they actually built this restaurant, and so they would get done with construction, and I'd come over and say, hey, I want to do a cocktail for the for the cocktail list, and we'd come up with a cocktail, and then we'd all drink lots of them. And that was kind of how we kept ourselves going. We had we had um, breakfast meetings at uh, Jade Garden for Dim Sum. Oh, do you remember my. those? And um, and we had uh, dinner meetings uh, or actually late evening meetings around cocktails we were creating in the bar. And then for years, we had sort of – we had some great bartenders come through there and they did the cocktails. But then I think – I probably – none left at this point. But I came back last summer before we opened Miller's Guild to try and A, work together a little bit more because we hadn't worked together for a long time. But also to, to try and – sort of help their team get ready for the fact there's going to be another restaurant with Jason's name on it and and sort of have this spirit going between the two restaurants that was similar. And and so I did some cocktails again when we came back there that were kind of fun, and now we've got a whole other generation of cocktails coming up. And one of the things that's always been big for both Jason and I is the people that work for us letting them do what they're awesome at and not, you know, it's not me coming in and making a bunch of cocktails. It's me working with the bartenders and just, just like Jason and his sous chefs all work together. He's, Mm -hmm. he's the, he's the conductor, but they definitely are the lead musicians playing, you know, really important roles in the kitchen. That's great. It's a team effort when it comes down to it. Execution is about a team. It's great to have some buy-in, some skin in the game per se that, and people, obviously you had a wealth of uh, inspirations in uh, your culinary uh, profession, your career, and how you've gained notoriety. I mean, that stuff's coming out of your head, right, Jason? Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, you, I always have to be some level of homage to you know, where I learned and who mentored me. And it's really important, I think, is my next job and in, in, in my career is really to coach and mentor and develop people. And to, to Jake's point about our kind of our cross-pollinization now, we have, we have two very uniquely different restaurants, and yet we have Miller's Guild 
Miller's Guild bartenders that are going over and doing cocktails at Crush because the techniques that we use at Crush are vastly different. Cool. So they're playing with their palates in, in a new environment. And then vice versa, we have cooks at Crush that you know have interest in playing with whole animals and learning how to butcher them <laughs> down. And so they'll come over and, and so it's a it's a really great mentoring process and it's important as a chef for me to take that. Nice That's step. a good feeling too. I know when you you're able to see their growth and see that positive uh, you know the residual of positivity is like yes, they're feeling confidence and all that. And I I'm convinced you now have an inner Asian in you because you were in uh, Singapore, Hawaii, and, and Jade Garden. It has to be <laughs> a <little bit laughs> Asian in there. So Miller's Guild, um, where was the uh, where did this come this name come from? Um, you know, it was, it, it was a, kind of a, a, two ideas that we kind of brought together. We said that we're going to build a place that's focused on craft and on on craft cooking, and so you bring multiple crafts together, um, a real craft cocktail approach and a you know, whole animal butchery approach. Um, we bring multiple crafts together and that we can form as a guild of people that are coming together uh. for one, one reason. And then the, the name, oh, you know, it's really sponsored. The Miller's aspect is really, it's, it's all about the place. And so the hotel was originally built as the Vance Lumber Company Hotel in 1926. So, South Lake Union was actually littered in the turn of the century with a couple of different sawmills, and we feel that wood is our cooking medium. It's really strong, you know, how, how wonderful the fire is. We figure, well, it's the miller of wood that produces the guild of crafts, and we brought it together. Ah, oh, that's great. That's a good story. And and the name was catchy, so it stuck. It sticks real easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was always laughing that uh, and cocktail bars in Seattle always had one name, you know, Liberty or Cannon or whatever it might be. But cool restaurants always had two: the, the Walrus and the Carpenter. Skilled. I was speaking with Je- uh, Chef Jason Wilson and sommelier. And what's your role there at uh, Miller's Guild, Je- Je- general manager? I, I'm. I think I think Jason and I are both trying to encourage all the awesome team members that we brought along with us, and so Jason's title is is uh, chef partner, and my title is manager partner. And the and the idea being that we're one of the team; we're not the we're not the only person on the team. Very cool. And Miller's Guild is on what street? What's the address there? And what are your hours? We're six twelve Stewart Street, so we're at Stewart and Sixth, and uh, we're eight a.m. to midnight seven days. Eight a.m. Yeah. Really? yeah, we do a killer brunch off that fire. Oh, yeah. yeah, seven days of brunch, and so we have oh. cocktails in the morning and <laughs> happy hour mornings and afternoons. Happy hour mornings—that's my kind Nothing of brunch. Wrong with that. And um, well, when we come back from this break, uh, I want to get into that menu for a little bit and some of the cocktails. And I see that Jake brought a bottle of liquid gold. It looks like, and we'll we'll figure out what's in. The, uh, those cute little glasses he's got here on Happy Hour Radio. Coming up on the show, I still have Erica Landon and Ken Palo of Walter Scott Wines, a cool producer, boutique producer from Oregon, doing some great Pinot Noir. And uh, we'll be right back. Remember, if you got a question, send us an email at ask at happyhourradio.net. June 19th through 21st, the world is converging on Walla Walla. The world of Syrah, that is. Celebrate Walla Walla Valley Wine, the world of Syrah, with winemaker panels, tastings, dining, and more. Compare Syrah wines from Casa Robles and Sonoma, California, Yara Valley, Australia, and over 60 Walla Walla wineries. Get tickets at wallawallawine.com slash celebrate. Don't wait. Space is limited, and it's filling up fast. That's wallawallawine.com slash celebrate. 
Hey, this is Chris Gorman from Gorman Winery, and you are listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570-KVI. Grab a stool. You're listening to Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Woodenville Wine Country's 90-point-plus Reserve Night with master mixologist Christopher Chan. Hey, and welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We are going to be mixing up some cocktails here, uh, just without anything, without ice and without, we'll go straight liquor. Uh, here with Jason Wilson, uh, chef of Miller's Guild and his managing partner and manager partner, <laughs> Jay Kossoff. Uh Coming up on the show, I've got Erica Landon and Ken Paolo of Walter Scott Wines. But uh, Chef Jason, tell us about the menu at Miller's Guild. Um, you know, it's a it's a simple approach to to what I call American cooking or artisan cooking, and this is going to be really finding a lot of really wonderful meats and fish from both our area and around the uh, around the country, and then we hit them on that big beautiful wood fire grill. Uh, vegetables have simple preparations and you know great technique by you know, cooked in ash and in coal and smoke and fire and and then uh, really fresh salads and it's it, for me it's I, I look at. The way in which I cook there is the way in which I want to eat 90% of my day. And uh, it's just kind of how I, what I'm hungry for. My uh, team and I look at things and say, okay, is this going to be delicious? And if it is, then it gets on the menu. Very cool. I remember seeing a copy of the menu. It's a one page, and it looks like it's handwritten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the fun part is from the Inferno, it changes every day, and, and the yeah. preparations change each day. And we, we sit down and handwrite it. And the original the concept really came or came out of uh, our, one of our partners, Kurt. Kurt Huffman says to us, "Well, let's just treat this like a jam session, and this is our garage band. And so every day, this is our set list, and we sit down and we write down, and we go here. This is what we're going to play with, and changes the next day. So it's pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, you're also doing that with the beverage side, huh, Jake? You've got a, a couple special concoctions or or proprietary beverages happening. We thought." We had to make the beverage program match up with the food, and the idea is we're doing these sort of unique but simple things, and what can we do that's unique and simple in the restaurant? And the two things that really stood out were, let's get people to make wine for us, Um, (laughs) because... I can't make wine, and I will not pretend that I can make wine. I'm not one of those sommeliers who's like, I'm going to start a winery. Uh, we know a oh, couple of those. We know some of those, don't we? <laughs> and um, but, what, but what I can do is I can say, wow, I really like that. Could you make something like that for me? And so we got a bunch of our favorite wineries, and we've got more coming, too, to make special wines for us. But instead of wasting the money and the environmental things like gasoline on putting them in bottles and packaging them up and shipping bottles around the world so that we can put wine in them, we put them in uh, beer kegs, and we developed a special tapping system that uses inert argon gas to preserve the wines. And so we actually pour the custom-made wines for us on draft in the restaurant. And you have those now available? We have those now available. We've got right now the lineup includes uh, a wine that we can taste today that's uh, Miller's Guild Syrah made by Waters Winery in Walla Walla for us. We've got a um, uh, carbonic macerated Carignan from the Sonoma Coast made by Lioko Winery in the Uh. Sonoma Coast for us. We've got a beautiful Riesling from um, Love and Squalor in the Willamette Valley. And um, we've got uh, really... Really incredible uh, unoaked Chardonnay from Alexandria Nicole in the Horse Heaven Hills in Washington. And we just 
finalized a deal today to get a really unique white from Walter Scott, who's um, wow, who's that's, showing up right now. That's serendipity. How appropriate. We've got Eric Hollenden with Walter Scott Wines here today. Hey, and you poured something that smells fantastic in my little uh, uh, sipping glass. This is my whiskey glass, I guess. And uh, tell us what this is. This is the other unique part of our beverage program. And we noticed a lot of bars were doing cask-aged cocktails, and we realized that too many of them were doing it, but we wanted to have casks in the restaurant because wood fit in with the fire, and it was it, <laughs> and, and, and they're cool. I mean, honestly, barrels are like the coolest-looking thing in the world. And, and we realized that there's a lot of spirits that we could flavor with the oak that aren't already, so we took white spirits like vodka, gin, and in this case, I have some um, mezcal from Oaxaca from Sombra Distillery. Um, that we aged in small whiskey casks. For agave spirits, we don't use new whiskey casks. We actually had used these casks already for aging uh, moonshine in. And then we poured the moonshine out after it was done and poured mezcal right back into it. Well, this this uh, liquid, this spirit is quite vanilla. It's very sweet. It has a lot of... The oak influenced it a lot, which is why we were glad we didn't use new barrels. Yeah, it would be um, tannic then, I You imagine. get a real vanilla sort of cocoa coffee and then baking spice hit from it, and then you get the vegetal salty character of the agave, which is, I think, a cool combination. It's going to be great in cocktails. We're still working. This came out of barrel last week, and we're still trying to figure out what the perfect cocktails for Well, it's are. incredibly it's, smooth. It's really interesting how much is developed by the barrel. Yeah, because mezcal can be a little rough. This and it smoothed it out. It, yeah. it got this really elegant, like, but still really complex, and it still tastes like mezcal underneath all that other stuff that we dressed it up with. Well, it's uh, it's gorgeous color, and it's a delicious glass, and it smells fantastic. Jason and Jake, this has been really fun, and congratulations on your new venture together, Miller's Guild on Stewart Avenue. Uh, what hotel is that? Hotel Max. Hotel Max. Check it out for breakfast, brunch, lunch, dinner, cocktails, <laughs> uh, and a oak aged mezcal. Jake and Jason, thanks for being on Happy Hour. Thanks Thank so you. much, Chris. And uh, Eric Landon, good to see you again, Mama. I know. Congratulations on your baby. And uh, thanks for being up here in Seattle. I'm glad this worked out. Welcome to Happy Hour. Well, it's uh, wonderful to be here. It was un- such a serendipitous uh, coming together, actually. I mean, just seeing you and coming and seeing the studio is fantastic. And the sun's out and everything's sun beautiful. The sun is out in the Northwest. <laughs> you can't beat it. So yeah. tell me, um, I know that you and I are both advanced sommeliers through the Court of Masters Sommelier, and you've been in the wine business down, uh, in the industry, I should say, uh, in Oregon, Portland, for, for many years and doing a lot of fun things as wine director right. and uh, consultant. And um, you got the wine bug. What happened? Well, uh, I got the wine bug, and I also fell in love, I think, with a wonderful, wonderful man, and it just all kind of came together. You know, we... Um Ken, being in the wine industry for many, many, many years, Ken was uh, also in industries. Um, he worked for distribution, taught me a lot about wine um, over the years, and he and I came together in, in a relationship, and he was interested in making wine, and I kind of shoved him off the cliff, and we both <laughs> uh, emptied some very meager retirement funds and Put it wow. together, yeah, and and now five years later, we have a small winery in the Ola Amity Hills, and I certainly am, will never claim to be a winemaker. I'm a mediocre harvest intern, as I like to say, <laughs> um, but uh, it's a pretty interesting. I think there's a there's an interesting correlation between the relationship of uh, the front of the house and the back of the house 
house and restaurants. You know, I think that Ken acts as the chef. He's very creative. He's producing. And you're in the front of the house. You're dealing with um, a lot of the aspects, organizational aspects and, um, you know, of events and things like that, uh, much like being in the restaurant. So there's a correlation there that was an easy transition for me. Five years, huh? And there's so much to do once you actually get your hands purple and, and white with uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Oh, and these yeah. are the two varieties you're producing? Yeah, and we do make a tiny bit of Pinot Blanc, actually. The the kegs that we're kegging up for um, for Jake, it's a 22-year-old vine block of Pinot Blanc. So really rare. We have, oh. one, we have one barrel of it, and he's getting a half of it. The grapes so. out of the barrel, the cat's out of the bag. We yeah. know. <laughs> but, it, but I think Pinot Noir is certainly a focus, and Chardonnay. And there's a there's a huge resurgence of Oregon Chardonnay going on right now. Um, I was talking to Jake about this earlier. There, So much of it was grafted over or kind of uh, ripped out and replanted over the years because Oregon had you know an interesting history with Chardonnay. And what we're seeing over the last five years or so is that there's this this energy about it. Um, they're replanting. Um, lots of really amazing vineyard sites are going to Chardonnay instead of Pinot Noir rather than getting the secondary sites. Um, right. So you're seeing really amazing quality fruit coming out. Some producers like Bergstrom, for instance, yeah. um, Adelsheim, Shehalem, amazing producers that have been making Chardonnay. Here Tendril. Just- Tendril, yes, Tendril. Yeah. Tony Rinders, Tony yes. Tony Rinders. Kicking kickin' butt with Chardonnay. So Chardonnay is no longer the step vine of the Vinifera family. No, <laughs> no, no. Not in Oregon. It's definitely it's it's making its mark. So well, it's exciting to be a part of that. It's, I'm, and I love Chardonnay. It's one of my uh, guilty pleasures, uh, especially Burgundy. But anything that resembles Burgundy without the price point in the United States is working for me, too. Uh, speaking here with Erica Landon of Walter Scott Wines. You can check him out online at Walter Scott Wine. Dot com And I have a beautiful glass of Chardonnay in front of me. Tell me about this wine. This is our Cuvée Anne Chardonnay. So we make we make a Willamette Valley Chardonnay, but then we make two single vineyard bottlings. Cuvée Anne comes from the BZ Vineyard, which sits on the east slope of the Eola Amity Hills. And we're located in the Eola Amity Hills. We make about 95% of our production comes from that AVA. And it's very, very, um, it, there's a tension that uh, comes to the fruit from from uh, an influence from the Van Duzer Corridor, which is very cold winds, a very dr- dramatic diurnal shift. Um, and this this vineyard, we split this block of Chardonnay with Claire and Brian at Big Table Farm, and we both make a bottling of it. This was one new punchin, um, Dami punchin, and two neutral barrels blended together, so 100 cases total. Um, it was aged for about uh, 15 months in barrel and then bottled and released actually this month. So uh, we're actually up here kind of showing our, our new releases, the 2012 wines. So this is a really, really special site. Um, and I think that it there's a textural component to this That's the wine. first thing I got. And, and uh, it's it would hit my palate. Uh, it was very soft and elegant. And I want to say that, but the acidity was so bright. That mm-hmm. is this, did this go through malolactic? A hundred percent. Wow, because that yeah. acid is just beautiful. Yeah. It's uh, laser sharp, um, but it is a, can you have a soft laser? It's a cold laser. That's what they do these days. <laughs> this is a beautiful wine. Thank and it's a, a punchin, which is uh, 600 liter, no, 100 gallons, right? 500 liters, I believe. 500 liters. 500 liters. So, it's yeah. a double barrel. About 100 gallons. About yeah. 100 gallons. Okay. It's not quite, it's like 
Yeah. There's 10 extra gallons in there somewhere, <laughs> or less gallons. <laughs> well, that's uh, delicious. And is you. there a special clone? Is this... Uh... This is all Dijon Clone 76, I believe. I should, yeah. <laughs> Double checking. <laughs> you keep looking at me. That's where the mic is. Don't worry about it. We can check my, it online. We have my cheat sheet behind me. <laughs> <laughs> With yeah. the baby. And what? Uh, tell us about the baby. Um, Miss Lucy May Paula was born on January 2nd. So mm-hmm. it's a... It's a f- First time working the market with a child is very ah, interesting, um, but she's been wonderful. And so. on January 2nd, you're likely to get a birthday party. Congratulations. Yeah, that's right, right? <laughs> she got far enough away from Christmas, I think, that she's good. Uh, so. Very good. Well, tell me about the um, Pinot Noir you've uh, also brought. Certainly. Um, the Dumox Pinot Noir. So this uh, also Eel Amity Hills uh, fruit comes from a vineyard planted in the early 80s, um, uh, called Eola Springs. Dumox is an old vine, ungrafted block of pomard. Like dumb ox? You like, dumb ox? Like you dumb ox. Okay. It's the nickname of Thomas Aquinas. So um, he oh. was a theologian philosopher. Yes. The owners nicknamed two of the original blocks. One was St. Augustine. The other one was Dumox. Dumox is um, 22-year-old ungrafted pomard. So... Um, Pretty epic little special block. It's also the the unique quality of this wine is that the there's a ribbon of marine sediment soil that runs through the vineyard, and the majority of the Ola Amity Hills is a clay, a basalt based clay. So it's a unique soil that gives the wine this power and kind of broad depth, kind of darker, more brooding qualities. Wow. Um, and so it's just special. We make 125 cases of this because we only get uh, one one block of it. And, um, yeah. So. Well, you are truly a boutique winery. And this Pinot Noir is delish. It's Thank fresh. You. It's fruity. But it has acidity. And it's there's a little bit of elegance here. I know it's quite young. It needs some time. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, Walter Scott Wines. This is Erica Landon, uh, the front of the house person for WalterScottWine.com. <laughs> Uh, Ken is the back of the house, and he's actually taking care of little Lucy. Um, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour. My pleasure. Oh, it's been fun. So, hey, um, I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Arnie Milan, uh, Chef Jason Wilson, and Jake Kossiv, and, of course, Erica, Ken, and Lucy here on Happy Hour Radio. Coming up next week, I've got the Runart Champagne Challenge. We're going to talk about the Seattle Wine Awards and the Oregon Wine Awards, and we're going to bring on the publishers of Tasting Panel Magazine. Oh, excuse me. Tasting Room Magazine, John and Nadine. We're going to chat about, you know, what makes that magazine work and how fun it is here on Happy Hour Radio. Hey, remember, life is always better with a designated driver. We'll see you next week on Happy Hour Radio. June 19th through 21st, the world is converging on Walla Walla. The world of Syrah, that is. Celebrate Walla Walla Valley Wine, the world of Syrah, with winemaker panels, tastings, dining, and more. Compare Syrah wines from Casa Robles and Sonoma, California, Yara Valley, Australia, and over 60 Walla Walla wineries. Get tickets at wallawallawine.com slash celebrate. Don't wait. Space is limited, and it's filling up fast. That's wallawallawine.com slash celebrate.